From the Sunshine State, this is Tampa Bay's TAN Talk. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than flacarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, flacarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at flacarshows.com. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Get in, Teddy. You're not going to run over me, are you? Excuse me, ma'am. I'm in kind of a hurry. I can see that. Dual carbs. Electrical fuel pump. Nice do-it-yourself job. What you can? Three-quarter race. What does she peek at? She does all right. You ought to install a tack. Tack costs money. Yeah, money. I'm Glenda Markle. You sure know your way around a car, lady. You have to in my line of work. I'm a girl. How about a little demonstration? Go on, Cat. Show the lady what the car can do. Yeah. I already know what you can do. Takes it a little while to warm up. Doesn't everyone? so we can talk. What's your name? Deke. Deke? Deke Rivers. Short for Deacon? I guess. I, I like the way you sing, Deke. You've got something. I don't know what it is. Ever think of doing it for a living? Yeah, everybody thinks. Ever try? Well, thinking and doing is two different things. How much do you make delivering beer? Well, now, how much do you make doing what you do? I'm a public relations counsel. Press agent. And I don't make enough to suit me. Do you? Does anybody? You're a hard one to talk to. We better stop coasting. Now, how'd you like to come with me? Sing with Tex Warner's band. You'd pay me for that? More than you're making now. And that'd be just a start. I don't know. It was a guy in St. Joe, Missouri one time told me he'd pay me to sing in his show. And then after I sung, well, he ran out on me and took my guitar with him. <laughs> then what more can you lose? A steady job. It's the first one I've had in a year, and I like to keep it. $18 a week in tips. Made 26 bucks last week. Yeah, that's why I gotta hang on to something steady. Someday I'm gonna have a place of my own, like a farm and all that. This could be steady. 50 a week to start. So why not start? <laughs> Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Button up my sleeve. Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hey, y'all, what do you get when you cross Suzanne Summers and Goldie Hahn? You get Linda Vaughn. And I'm listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Why don't you? Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tan Talk 1340.com, and you can see me live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com. We can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out Nostalgic Radio and Cars, the, uh, the website, which is where all the shows are archived. Good evening, Bobby. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Should have well, played my on-the-phone thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can still do that. But at any uh, rate... Let me need to do that. So. Okay. Here, hang on. Uh, hang on, you got something? I'm on the phone! Right, oh, now yeah, yeah, I yeah. told okay. you. Okay, okay, okay. You're on the phone. Anyway, uh, we got a very special guest for you this evening. 
And uh, another uh, kind of a car guy, a historian, kind of nostalgic guy that's been around for a long time. You know, this here is Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And it's where you can listen to some of the most legendary, fascinating names in motorsports. So, And we're all about the stuff that's uh, really cool. A lot of the pioneers that were into uh, road racing, drag racing, uh, yeah, even occasionally some short track guys, you know. But uh, we, uh, we try to bring you these guys and uh, share their stories with you. And uh, we want to get them all on the show because these are the guys that uh, influenced me. In fact, you know, when I grew up in Northern Cal... You know, I was in Hot Rod, Riding Journal, all those magazines, and, you know, Car Craft, Car Model Science, you know, that's what we did. I mean, as kids, you start out building models, and then you're tinkering with, uh, you know, bicycles, slot cars, all that kind of stuff. And then eventually, you, the disease gets worse, and you end up with uh, road race, or uh, you end up with full-size cars. Okay, now it's time to introduce our very special guest for the evening. This gentleman is a uh, automotive journalist. He's a historian. And he goes by the nickname The Wavemaker. I'm going to let him explain that to you, but I'm delighted to welcome to the show. Uh, kind of a nostalgic racer himself, a car collector, got some interesting drag race cars, uh, Don Prieto. Don, how you doing this evening? So far, so good. So far, so good. So why did, now you're a Louisiana boy, so you're from the south like the rest of these guys down here. I'm actually from out west, but you migrated yeah. there later. But tell us about early days in Louisiana. Well, uh, in high school, I got interested in cars by playing mostly with model airplanes and matriculating toward cars as I turned, what, 13 or 14, went to my first circle track race. They called them jalopy races in those days. And uh, my friend took me out to the races, and I was really interested and a couple of the race car people took a liking to me when I walked around in the pits, and they put me in their car and let me crank on the steering wheel and step on the pedals and stuff like that. And so that's how I got into the, the uh, interest in automobiles. And my first car was a, a 33 Ford Cabriolet that I bought with my paper route money. Uh, I made about maybe 30 bucks a month, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. And I paid $125 for the car uh, over time. And uh, when I brought the gentleman the $100 payment, uh, he threw me the keys. So I got a 25% discount. Uh, by being prompt, and I paid him, I think, over 90 days. And that became my high school car, and it was a pretty trick hot rod. I took the fenders off and uh, spin the tire down the street, first and second gear rubber, they used to call it. Uh-huh, yep, yep. And uh, uh, just gravitated toward people who had cars and who did car things. There were several people in the neighborhood that were interested in cars, and so we had lots of uh, sessions, shall, shall we say, <laughs> around the uh, fireplace. Yeah, uh, talking about uh, what what we dreamed of of doing at some point. And uh, I I entered the military in uh, 1954, and. Uh, there was a guy that ran the barracks. He was a sergeant, and he had a brand-new Oldsmobile. Well, I took him to a, like a fish took, takes to water. And he and I became friends, and he would let me drive the car. And we took it to the drag races a couple times over in Karnak, Texas. We were stationed in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. And we took the car over to the drag races and got our ass beat promptly by cars that were a little bit hopped up and who knew what they were doing, you know? Well, now, Shreveport so, actually had a drag strip back in the day, didn't they? Uh, they had a, a strip at Mansfield. Okay. It didn't come along till by the time I got out of the military is when it just started. I spent four years in Shreveport, and uh, 
I think the racetrack started right after I got out. Okay. And went back to New Orleans. And at that point, I had made a lot of friends in the car business in in New Orleans. One of them was Nott Farrington, and he had a series of Thunderbirds, uh, one that he built and uh, raced at Bonneville, set the record at 240 miles an hour, and he became pretty much my mentor. I would go over there days on end and uh, help him, mostly in the evening, because uh, he worked all day and so did I. And we'd work on the cars in the evening, and he just taught me what I needed to know. And uh, he's, he's still around. He's 102 years old. Wow, great. That's super. Exactly. See, hot rodding makes you live longer. I think so. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live to be 100, so uh, I guess that's true. <laughs> well, we had Ed on a couple weeks ago, and he's 100, going to be 101 here in July. Yeah, he uh, he comes to the shop on Saturday night with a bunch of other guys to drink a little whiskey and uh, have a snack or two, usually pizza. Okay, cool. And we sit around, and he, he usually comes in with a uh, a question of the week. Oh, okay. And last the last couple of weeks he's had, the question was, what do you know about sodium-filled valves? Well... All these experts sitting around the table chimed in, and uh, he proceeded to tell us the history of sodium fill valves, which came prior to the war. Okay. Italians kind of invented it during the super submarine air races era, uh-huh. and uh, he, uh, he knew all about that. He knew about the company that did it in the United States. And he knew about the fact that there were some guys that were counterfeiting them that didn't work, that caused failures in airplanes. Mm. I mean, he, he's just a storehouse of information. And he uh, he regales us every Saturday night with some form of automotive history. Okay. It's fun to be around. Absolutely. Anyway, I started <coughs> about not Farrington being okay. turned two. I, re- I did a, uh, I was able to do a, a magazine piece in a magazine called Robert's Journal on that Thunderbird and its whole history and the history of Knott and I uh, over time. Now, was this a five, six, or seven bird? And what I year was it? published uh, uh, last summer, and I was able to present a copy to Knott on his 100th birthday. Oh, fantastic. That was was remarkable, I'm telling you. It made me feel so good to be able to do that for him. What year was the Thunderbird? Uh, It was a 56 Thunderbird that had been stolen and stripped. So he started out with a stripped car. Uh made it into a hot rod first. He put a live axle in the front, a 34 Ford axle, put a quick change in the back, and he hopped up a 348 uh, Y-block Ford. And uh, that uh, that motor uh, had a lot of internal flaws, and he put a, a McCullough supercharger on it and, and proceeded to break the crank. Mm. And uh, a, a, a mutual friend, Tommy Jordan, came along with a 454-inch Chrysler. He said, "Why don't you put the Chrysler in the in that Thunderbird and take it to Bonneville?" Well, that got Knott's attention. And so he uh, he put the motor in there, and they went out, and they went 196 or something like that. And he got hooked on Bonneville, so he brought the car back to the shop and put his own blown Chrysler in it and went back and set the record. And Don Francisco, who was one of the tech writers at Hot Rod Magazine in those days, we're talking 1961, 2, and 3, right in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francisco called the presses at, at Hot Rod and said, hold some pages for this car. Wait till you see it. He got six pages in Hot Rod. Nobody ever got six pages in Hot Rod in those days. But, I mean, it was that nice. Just stunning. Candy apple red. Uh, the Chrysler was all chromed out. 
the water system was polished aluminum tubes and stuff like that. It was a gorgeous car. And he kept it, and he restored it uh, as it was the last time he ran it. And it's now in the Louisiana Transportation Museum. Really? In Natchitoches, Louisiana. So if you're ever in that neighborhood, it's the northwest corner of Louisiana. It's south of Shreveport, about 75 or 100 miles. And the car's sitting there with a bunch of other stuff. Not so many race cars in there. I think there's one from Candies and Hughes. Uh, but that would be the only other car that I noticed. Well, now, if you're talking Bonneville and you're talking uh, land speed stuff yeah. and we're talking late 50s, early 60s, did you cross paths with uh, Mickey Thompson? Oh, yeah. I worked for Mickey. I went to work for Mickey when I moved to California. Mm-hmm. Uh, left him others back, got me a job down there, and uh, I was machining uh, intake and exhaust rocker arms for uh, the Hemihead Pontiac project that Mickey had going. And uh, I worked there three or four months, and I got sideways with him, and he ran me off, so I <laughs> somewhere else, you know. <laughs> I was, what, 29 years old, and, and Mickey was a world, world champion. And uh, I had a little bit of a New Orleans chip on my shoulder, you might say. Uh-huh. So I would lip him. You know, I'd give him a little lip, and he didn't care for that. What was he like? Was he, I mean, obviously he's, like, regarded as one of the geniuses in in the industry back in the day. Mickey was the the preeminent promoter. He knew what he was doing. And Wally Parks, who ran the National Hot Rod Association, was terrified of the possibility that Mickey would start his own drag racing organization. Really? That's how, how powerful he was. And he eventually got into uh, stadium racing with uh, trucks, off-road trucks. Mm-hmm. They would they would bring in millions of dollars worth of mud and put them in a Anaheim Stadium or L.A. Coliseum, and they would race these mini trucks that the the factories were producing. Uh, Ford had a Ranger, uh, Chevy had an S10. Toyota had an SR5, Nissan had a, uh, I forget what the Nissan was. Anyway, they would they would modify them kind of like the desert racers they have now. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would race them in the stadium, and the place would get full. But the cost of doing the mud was really a problem. So he, he hooked up with a guy named, oh, what's his name? Anyway, it doesn't matter what his name is. He hooked up with him. He had been promoting motocross. And so they said, look, let's run the trucks one weekend and the motocross the next weekend or vice versa. And we would save half the expense. And so oh, uh, I, just, I thought I had his name. Anyway, they, um, they went into partners. And it worked for a while, and then Mickey, who was kind of uh, close with the buck, uh, figured out that he was stealing from him. Ooh. And the the guy that he was in partners with. And so uh, Mickey uh, sued him and won a, a substantial sum of money uh, for uh, damages. And it turns out the guy had him killed. Oh, and he, uh, he he just went to jail about oh I guess a year and a half ago. They finally caught him. He had bragged to one of his wives uh, that uh, he had been a partner to that. He he probably paid for it because he was a, he was on a boat in the Bahamas when they when Mickey was shot. Mm. He and his wife were shot in the driveway, gangster style. And the two guys rode away on bicycles. And we know that because uh, Ernie uh, Alvarado lived in the house next door and heard the shots and opened his bathroom window and saw him get on the bicycles and ride out. But they never caught them. But they finally got the the, uh, the guy. Wow, I wish I could tell. I think his name was Hoffman or something like that. Hoffman. I- that was that's sad because that you know that was you know losing one of the greats right there. 
Oh man, he was he was a promoter in the first order, and he had funny stories about him. He uh, he he was close friends with Bunky Newson. Okay, at uh, Pontiac, mm-hmm. and so that's how he made the Pontiac deal. Uh, they they let him build whatever he wanted, gave him money, gave him parts, any any engines that didn't pass inspection. When before they were put in the cars, was set aside and sent to Mickey to deal with, and Mickey would sell them or hop them up or do whatever he wanted to. And if he made speed equipment for him, Pontiac funded the speed equipment. So he was had a, a great business going. And um, Bunky left Pontiac and went to be president of Ford. So Mickey followed him over there. Uh, Mickey had, had set the, no, he didn't set the record. He went 406 miles an hour with four Pontiac engines. And, uh, those, uh, that was part of the deal to build a streamliner. And he built race cars. He won the nationals with Jack Chrisman in 62, I think, 61 or 62, with the Hemihead Pontiac, which... Nobody'd ever done that kind of stuff before. They always used factory equipment. Here, this was performance parts built by a race car guy uh, using a, the basis of a, a passenger car engine and won the biggest event in the country at the time. Now, the Hemihead Pontiac, did Pontiac develop that, or did they give no. Mickey Thompson complete control over that design? He did it, and Gene Mooneyham... Uh, did all the machine work. He had worked for Al Sharp, and Al Sharp had built Chrysler Hemi heads, aluminum Chrysler Hemi heads, in the early days of drag racing. So before Keith so, Black and everybody? Oh, yeah, long before. Really? The, uh, Mickey went, uh, I think, 1959. He went fast with the Pontiacs, and uh, 62... Uh, was when he won the Nationals. And Keith Black didn't even build a drag race until 62. And that was when they built the, the uh, Greer Black and Perdome car. Now, the Crispin brothers, when they built their cars, did they build the chassis and everything, or did they use, like, Kent Fuller chassis or somebody else's, no. or how did that work? No, the Hustler one uh, was drawn on the concrete and funded by Frank Cannon, to put the Chrysler motor out of his Thunderbird into the dragster and go drag racing. Okay. Prior to that, Art had run the what, what we call the 25 car, which was a, a dry lakes car from the 20s and 30s that he just kept improving and did lots of different engines in it. And But he did all the driving, and he and his brother did all the work. And I think Leroy Newmeyer was involved with that car. But uh, the Hustler was strictly Cannon's doings. Okay. He 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 funded he he talked Art into building the car and he put up the money and he named it he named it after the B fifty eight Hustler airplane. And he painted it he had a fifty six Chevy that was Sierra Gold and Navajo white, or I think that was Navajo white. Anyway, he chose those colors for the original Hustler. And uh, they won Bakersfield in 1959 with that car and set the world on fire. He, he, he really ran. He ran 180. He was the first one to run 180. Now, were they running on fuel or gas? Fuel. Fuel. They started out on gas with cannons. Uh, motor because the the fuel van was on, and then <clears throat> about halfway through the fuel van, Cannon says, "We're the fuel guys like Garlitz are all getting the recognition. We need to build a fueler." And so that's when they built they 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 finished the Hustler by putting the body on it, and they put a blown Chrysler in it. Tell us a little bit about the fuel van. What 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 prop that prop propagated the uh, fuel van? Back then, well, uh, was it a safety the, issue? Uh, uh, Cook and Bedwell were two dragster guys, 
and they ran 169 in 1957, and there were no brakes in those days. And so the strip operators got together and said, we're going to have to do away with this nitromethane and stick to gas because these cars go too fast. So those strip operators decided they were going to do away with fuel. And they presented the problem to, to Wally Parks. Wally Parks made the mistake, in some people's eyes, uh, of going along with him and banning fuel. If he hadn't banned the fuel, the strip operators would have been out of luck because he held all the power <coughs> nationwide. And the, the strip operators in California were just local guys. Uh, C.J. Hart from Santa Ana and the guys from Colton and Johnny Sewers from Kingdon and and the uh, McLennans from Half Moon Bay and people like that, they all agreed that uh, fuel was uh, making the cars go too fast. And so they they decided amongst themselves to ban the fuel on their tracks, and they convinced Parks to listen to their, their plea. And then Parks made the decision uh, to ban fuel, and it lasted till uh, February of 1963. So in the meantime, on the East Coast, guys like Gartless and and uh, and uh, Karamasinas and people like that were and yeah, they were they were kicking ass and and getting uh, appearance money and and even uh, Gartless got paid to come to California to race in 1959 so that the guys in California could get a shot at him. So he didn't think he was doing all those fancy numbers he was turning. Was so were they on gas and then he's running fuel? No, they were they they the guys that brought him out were running Bakersfield which allowed fuel. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, San Gabriel, Riverside and uh uh, Bakersfield allowed fuel. What about Lions? Even with the gas, no, uh, Lions went to, Mickey was running gas at the time. I okay. mean, Mickey was running Lions at the time, so he was one of the guys that said, let's slow him down. Oh, really? So he was one of the nine, yes. What about Pomona and Riverside? Pomona, uh, I don't think Pomona ran fuel, because they were kind of, uh, Close to the NHRA people, okay. Like Griffith and the and the Pomona Valley Time and Association ran Pomona. When did IHRA come about? Were they around back then? No. So they no, came around IHRA later, right? They came around uh, in the late fifties, early sixties, formed by Jim Tice and Don Garlitz. Oh, really? Yeah. In the East Coast here. Uh, no, it was in Kansas. In Kansas? Oh, okay. Yeah. But Garlitz was traveling, and Tice had the idea, and Garlitz thought it was a good one, so he pitched in, he threw in with him. So IHRA, IHRA had different rules, that less Larry, limitation on them than NHRA, right? Larry Carrier came along, I think he owned Bristol at the time. And uh, he decided to form an association and go head-to-head with all of them. Ah. And so he he marched to a different drum. He made his different rules. And uh, I don't know much about Carrier personally, but uh, it was not brewingly successful. Okay. So uh, it, uh, it kind of fizzled out. And when when Carrier uh, sold it to somebody, that was the end of it. it. I think it still exists as an organization, but it don't amount to anything. All right, let's go to the early '60s. There, uh, the Greer, Perdome, Greer by Bl- Perdome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's so. When did you get buddy buddies with Kent Fuller? And how did he start? He started. He was a chassis builder, right? Kind of. Yes. Yeah, I uh, I got to California and. Uh, October of 63. <clears throat> and uh, everybody in California in the racing business were all pals. There okay. was no animosity, no rivalries, no no nasty, no chip on the shoulder stuff. I couldn't believe it. 
And guys welcomed me like I was a long-lost friend. Uh, and you, so when you got to know somebody, you could have a conversation with them, and you were pals. Well, Fuller was um, a chassis builder of some uh, reputation, so I gravitated toward him, and I got to know him. And uh, I never had one of his cars, but uh, in uh, 2005, I decided to build the uh, single-engine Ivo car that uh, uh, he made famous when he was a teenager, actually. Yeah, actually, Fuller and Tommy Ivo were buddies, and they kind of worked together, didn't they, back then? Well, if Fuller built the car for Ivo... And they were partners. Okay. And uh, Ivo was more of a showman than Fuller. Fuller was a racer. Uh, Ivo was a showman. Okay. So he wanted the car really pretty. Okay. So he spent the money to make it pretty. And Fuller kind of took credit for it. (laughs) Okay. Eventually, Fuller built the dual-engine car. Right. uh, Which followed the single-engine car by a year and a half. Okay. Very, very successful. And he was he went on tour with it and made money, and Perdome was his tire wiper. So uh, the, when they finished the tour and came back to California, the fuel van was still on. And so he sold a single-engine car to Perdome, and he built the four-engine car. And these and are all Buick-powered, right? Yes, four Buick engines. Okay. And he was still working for the studio at that point. And the studio found out about the cover shoot that they did on the studio lot with the girl from the Margie series that Ivo was in. And they put in his contract that he couldn't drive the car as long as he was in the series. Okay. So they put Perdome in it, and they went out and they traveled and made money with the car on the weekends, and then uh, when the series ended, he got in it and toured with it, and he brought it to the Nationals, and they decided that they'd limit it to exhibition only. So he didn't. He never actually got into competition with the car. It wouldn't have beat anybody anyhow because it just smoked the tires, you know. <laughs> it, it weighed like 4,000 pounds. And so... Uh, uh, when just about the time that the bloom was off the rose of the four-engine car, they were they rescinded the fuel. So Ivo had Fuller build build a uh, a front-engine fuel dragster, and Dave Zuchel put the motor in it, and it was called the Barnstormer a name that it got after it had gone on tour and just whipped everybody but Garlitz. He was a, Gar, he and Garlitz just about split the race money. Uh, they, they'd match race, uh, two out of three, and one weekend Ivo would win, the next week Garlitz would win, but it wasn't intentional. It was that, they were that competitive. And so, well, uh, uh Ivo moved forward with that car, and he and Fuller had a falling out. So he started his own chassis business and had Rod Pepmuller as the uh, as the chassis builder. He had a lot of experience building uh, chassis. And uh, so he built, like, uh, the, the Wendersky car and Korshavaldus and Lovato. He built two cars for Mickey with the Pontiac motors in them. Uh, he, he was quite prolific, but Pat Muller didn't want to run the business, and Ivo wanted to go on tour, so they shelved the business. And he was much more successful on tour, because people just loved Ivo. He, he is so personable. Uh, and he's got time for everybody. Little kid comes up, wants the autograph. He stops what he's doing and does the autograph. And he'll take pictures with you. I mean, he's a real showman. And he he was involved in my effort to build that car. 
And Fuller built the chassis. A gentleman by the name of Matt Martin donated the engine to the project. And uh, I pretty much finished out the car myself uh, with the help of Bruce Dida, who did the body work. And uh, when we made the debut, which was at my annual taco party, Huh. Uh, Ivo was in the car when it started the first time. Oh, wow. And I said, what do you think? He says, well, it's clearly much nicer than the one that the last time, the first time that I brought my car out. He says, and it sounds more crisp. I said, well, it is running on alcohol, and you were running on gasoline, so that maybe that explains it. I didn't want to take too much credit. <laughs> and so he, uh, he loved it. And he, he comes uh, to the party every year. And anytime I go somewhere with a, with a single-engine car and there's nobody else there with any Ivo Repro car, uh, he'll usually get in it with me and we'll make some noise and burn some nitro and stuff like that. Um, tell us about your little toys. I understand you, uh, and we'll, we'll back up here in a little bit, but I just share some stories about this. Uh, I understand you have a 32 Ford that has a Lexus V8 in it? Yes, sir. That's I do. Well, tell us how that came about. That's interesting. Well, uh, a friend of mine was the president of Lexus. Okay. And Lexus was one of our uh, customers in my business. And... Uh, he talked to me and a bunch of other people about building a hot rod and putting a new GS400 motor in it to introduce the car in a different fashion. Okay. And and to exploit the motor. So TRD spent about a quarter of a million dollars building a hot rod out of that motor. And Rod Millen did all the suspension. That's the guy who owns the records at going up Pikes Peak, Rod Mellon. Okay. And the uh, uh, Chuck Lombardo at California Hot Rods finished the project, and it was magnificent. And when uh, after they finished the local circuits of the car shows, then they gave the car to me to give to the press, like I did with the regular Lexus cars, and we did that for a couple of years. And then uh, the the opportunity came about that we did a buck, a a seat buck for the new LS430. So that means we took the interior out, put it on plywood to go to a car show so people to see and sit in and stuff like that without having to get in and out of the doors. Okay. So... uh, it's too expensive to put the car back together once you strip it out like that. So uh, Brian said, uh, well, why don't you take the running gear out of it and send the body over to the body school? Toyota had a body school, still do. And uh, he gave me the engine and the running gear. So I decided at that point, I was trying to get a BMW V12, Oh, nice. Um, but Motor Trend, Motor Trend crashed a 7 Series BMW. Uh-huh. And uh, they were going to give me the engine out of that, but Motor Trend decided to buy the car. It was cheaper than than the beating they would have took by the insurance company. Okay. And so uh, I missed out on that V12. And that's what motivated my friend to give me the... Uh, the Lexus out of the Lexus. And so that was the germ, and it grew into a 32 Ford, uh, one of Jerry Kugel's 107-inch wheelbase 32 chassis. And uh, Is this an all-steel car now? No, no. This is a, a composite car that I bought from Texas. Okay. Uh, the very last body they built because they were so good they were too expensive and the company didn't make it. So um, I went to uh, uh, LA, uh, the California uh, Roadster uh, 
Oh, wait a minute. The Grand National Roadster Show? The Grand National Roadster Show. Okay. And Brian Brennan, uh, who was the editor of Street Rotter, came by and he says, Oh, another black 32 Ford. I says, Not this one, partner. <laughs> so he says, What's new? What's about? What about it? I says, Well, let me show you the motor. And I showed him the Lexus. And he says, How about we do a full road test in the magazine? I says, Fine with me. So uh, we went out to Fontana, the head of drag strip at the time, and it ran 12, 7, 110 miles an hour. And it outperformed the Camaro in the 70 foot slalom. Oh. And uh, it, but it had lots of potential. So he did the whole story on it, and we did some improvement stories later. Uh, Jerry Kugel wanted to do a, a brake test story. So we did. We went out to the same racetrack and changed brake pads and, and uh, roll bar settings and stuff like that, and got it to stop from seventy and one hundred and thirty-one feet, which is Porsche territory. Whoa! Well, now you got the complete Lexus running gear, brakes and all, yep. suspension, the whole nine yards, right? Uh, uh, the engine, transmission, and uh, uh, the. Uh, Interior, the, the the key situation with it, you know, we, ignition is uh, all part of the uh, computer system. Right. And the uh, rear end is a uh, Jerry Kugel with a nine-inch Ford center section. Okay. And the brakes are Willwood in the front and Corvette inboard brakes in the back. Oh, nice. So it's it's really the car looks docile. And it sounds docile when it's sitting there idling, but it does things that most roadsters can't do. It goes fast, it stops, and it corners. And it corners. Yeah, and that that's one of my toys. I have a Nomad. Yeah, tell us about the 56 Nomad. Yeah, um, I bought it about uh, oh, 10 years ago. I found it in Florida. In Florida. The color I wanted, because the Hustler, my other dragster, is Hustler 6. Okay. And it's it's a Sierra Gold and White, which is the 56 Chevy colors. And I was looking to have a push car of the same color. Okay. So I went to Florida, and on vacation, I stopped in at the man's store, and he had it. I bought it, and he shipped it to me. And then Edelbrock took it and did a uh, a full engine fuel injected engine for it and it made 310 horsepower at the rear wheels okay and uh, uh street rider magazine did a full <coughs> suspension front end cpp uh drop spindles uh put a stangy rear end in a different rear rating ratio lowered the car slightly in the front uh, it's just a dynamite piece, and uh, I put a—I just recently put a five-speed in it. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. So it's—it's it's a really nice car, and it's been in three articles in Street Rider over the last ten years or so. And uh, the other cars I have uh, is the uh, is the Hustler Six. Okay. It's the last one of the of the Canon efforts at drag racing. We crashed it in Bakersfield. I was looking for Woody Gilmore at the time at race car engineering. Uh-huh. We built the Hustler Six, and we put put the Jocko body on it, and we took it to Bakersfield, brand new, never been run, and uh, the body didn't work. It just that did all kinds of funny things to the car. If you had plenty of power, it would smoke the tires. If it if it didn't have much power, the the downforce on the body would bog the motor. So Woody got upset and took the body and threw it over the fence. Wow. Uh, Pete Ogden made the last run on it and turned it over just off the starting line. I'm sure you've seen the footage because everybody's seen the footage of that car crashing it just spun out and and tumbled 
so they uh, they cut the front end off. Cannon put his motor in uh, Mooneyham's car, and uh, I got the tail section. So I stuffed it in the raft. I put it in somebody's rafters and kept it for years, and then finally turned it into a, a race car. Uh, it's my one of my cackle cars. That and the Ivo car, the two cackle cars that I have. When they use the term cackle car, what does that mean? Well, uh, this this tractor is exactly like it was when it crashed in, in 1965. Okay. And it's got the, the safety equipment that was legal in 65. Okay. But it's not legal now. Okay. So you can't drive it down the drag strip under power. Oh. And so we we started up a nitro and make big flames and lots of nitro smoke. Okay. And that's called cackling. Cackling. Okay, I got it. Now, we'll have at my, my taco party coming up, we'll have about 15 or 16 of those cars here in my in the alleyway by the shop. Okay. We'll start them up one at a time and make lots of noise. Now, let me just ask you this. At your taco party... Or at your pizza party. Now you're from Louisiana. Yeah. You got some some of the does does clear show up around there? <laughs> if uh, you know what I mean. Some shine? <laughs> no. No? Oh, okay. Not really no. What the taco party is a result of uh a memorial service we did for Gary Gablich when he was killed. Okay. And it was and Jocko started the, uh, the the taco party. Okay. And there were five of us of the original members, and it was Jocko and Doug Cruzy and uh, uh, Shipman, Fred Gregory, uh, and uh, Fred Muhlenhardt, and me. Okay. And uh, we did the party every year, but we it, we floated it around. Okay. We'd go to different guys' shops and have the taco party. That started 30 years ago. Oh. And last year, we had it at my shop for the 31st year. And I'm the only one that has a shop big enough to hold the crowd. And all my partners died. So I'm the only one left. Oh. Yeah, so the party's coming up on the 13th of March. Okay. And uh, there are some guys coming out from New Orleans and from Denver and from Maryland and from Washington Washington State and bring their cars down, and we have this giant Cackle Fest taco feed. Okay. That sounds like uh, fun. It's a whole bunch of drag racers. Iski will be there uh, just about... Most of the Southern California member drag racers that are still alive and still in town. Well, Alex Exidius, he's still around, too. Alex is 95. I worked for Alex at Hot Rod Industry News for a spell. Uh-huh. And uh, so he and I go back a long ways. That's 1969, I guess, uh, that I worked for him. We were, he was the, ed- the publisher and I was the editor of Hot Rod Industry News, which is a trade magazine that Peterson funded uh, to make the publisher, to make the advertisers happy. So you were with Drag Racing Magazine in the 60s, like 66, 67. Then you went to Hot Rod, right? Hot Rod Industry News, is that what it was later? Yep. Okay. I worked at the time in the in the book division at uh, Peterson, and I produced things like the Drag Race Pictorial and the uh, Street Rod Pictorials, the one-shots that were all color. Did you, so you were basically like a photographer then for him? I was a photographer writer, yes. Okay. So did, that means you got to travel around a lot of the races and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I went to the Nationals every year from 64 to like 73 or 4, I guess. When did Drag Racing Magazine start? Uh, 1963. Okay. It was started by Mike Darty and Pete Millar. And they had a guy by the name of uh, Luke Kimsey publishing it and funding the the project. 
what was it like when with, with publications like that? So when you when you left there and you went to Hot Rod Industry News, was that already established as well? Uh, it had a couple of years under its belt. Yeah, so it was uh, it was going, but it was a free magazine to the speed shops. Okay. So it was you didn't have to go worry about the newsstand and stuff like that. So what? So what supported it? So basically, like advertising, advertisers and parts and yeah. things like that. So it's classified. Advertising. We even got popular enough to where the car companies advertised. Oh, when they bought a package of Hot Rod and Motor Trend. We got the spinoff to put the same content in the Hot Rod industry news for a much less, well, much much smaller fee. We got a bit a minute left, and then you were at SEMA too for a while, right? Yeah, uh, Edelbrock uh, got elected chairman of Hot Rod. Uh huh. I mean, I'm sorry, of SEMA. SEMA. And uh, McFarland and I had done a. Uh, McFarland was the worked at Edelbrock, and he was the guy who knew all about the emissions rules and noise rules and stuff like that. And he convinced me to do a project car on a 57 Nomad that I had by taking the stock engine, test it, and then go through it and put hot rod parts on it and go back and test it, which we did. And we improved things not only by uh, speed and ET, but we cleaned the air that was coming out of the exhaust pipe by like 15%. Oh, wow. Well, that really made me a hero because we did that for Hot Rod Industry News. And so Vic, when he took over SEMA, and Lou Bainey was running SEMA, he was the, the managing director. He and I were friends. And Vic said, how would you like to work for SEMA? I said, Vic, I'll do anything for you the way you treat me. And so I went to work for SEMA. I left Hot Rod Industry News where I had a I had a gravy train there, I really. But I stepped into the SEMA thing and was faced with a lot of uh, uh, rules coming out of the different states, trying to deal with these cars that were jacked up in the back and changing wheels and the tires sticking out of the fenders and stuff like that. So they sent me all over the country to deal with these legislators. Hey, what I would do is, whatever the rule was, that they were trying to post, I would to get one of the experts from the manufacturer, and I'd get the lawyer from Washington, and we'd sit down and and work out a compromise. Ron, Don. We'd go to the state and do the compromise. Don, we are up against the clock. You know what? Are you going to be around next week? Let's do a part two, because this is too much fun, and I want there's a lot more stuff I want to get into. Are you game for next week? We'll do it again. Uh, yeah, that, that'd be all right. Don, we are up against the clock. We're out of time. But I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. This is truly fun. i got a whole list of questions for you. Let's bring you back for part two next week. Does that sound fine? I hope, I hope somebody learned something while I'm gibbering. Oh, you did a great job. Next week. All right, you got it. I want to thank my special guest, Don Prieto, the wave maker. Hey, take care, buddy, and we'll, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgia Radio Cars. Don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday night between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network. Don't forget, we're going to have part two with Don Perito next week. In the meantime, I want to see you guys some of the car shows. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.